0: Sing this song for the healing of the world. Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helps meet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. There are many people and organizations doing dedicated and important work in caring for our planet, but few have excited me as much as my recent introduction to Extinction Rebellion. They have a take on getting things done that is refreshing, since their plan is to step past the logjam of the political process in the U.S. and take back power right to the people. And instead of talking about things like carbon neutral by 2050 or the like, their plan is to do it by 2025. Impossible is not in the vocabulary of Extinction Rebellion, and they've already got a hefty track record to show that they can get things done. We're joined today by Daniel Yildrum, who is what they call a mass mobilizer for this area of the country. Daniel is doing some amazing organizing for Extinction Rebellion, right along with raising a family and running a sustainable farm in Viroqua, Wisconsin. And he joins us via Zoom from a very busy home with a range of kids running joyfully and energetically about the house. Daniel, I'm really excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. i looking forward to talking to you. I'm so glad that you reached out to me before last Saturday when we met at Phoenix Park here in Eau Claire. You're a regional organizer for this thing called Extinction Rebellion America. Give me an idea what Extinction Rebellion is and what Extinction Rebellion America is.
1: So Extinction Rebellion is a movement that emerged out of the UK in 2018, 2017. They were sort of realizing that we were entering into a new period in terms of climate activism. So these are people who have been working and thinking about the climate crisis for a number of years, who started to mobilize in a different kind of way towards getting the kind of changes we need in our society in order to survive the climate crisis. So it's it's been very successful in the UK. They had a couple of uprisings in 2018 and 2019. And basically what it looks like is mass nonviolent civil disobedience. So kind of like Martin Luther King or Gandhi-style campaign in London, where they're closing down bridges, closing down major thoroughfares with clear demands delivered to the government. So we've seen a lot of success come out of that in the UK. And now it's spread into a global movement. So there's organizations and chapters around the world. And Extinction Rebellion America is now really getting going and starting new chapters with a clear focus in mind, which is bringing all of our support and energy together in April of next year in 2021 and converging on Washington, D.C. to try and apply this strategy to see if we can get some changes done.
0: And your position in the organization, you're an organizer, but how is this structured across the United States?
1: The role that I'm in is a mass mobilizer. And my mandate is to start as many chapters regionally and nationally as I can. It's a decentralized organization, so um, these chapters don't need permission from any central authority, but they can use help getting started. I'm somebody who can come into town, do the sort of groundwork organizing to get things started, and then I'm able to provide that new group with tools as they need to get started and guidance also if they ask for it. So it's a really exciting job to
0: be in. I guess maybe what would be a good thing is to step through some of the motivation for Extinction Rebellion, why we're shifting into this different phase, because I'm almost twice your age, I was in high school during the first Earth Day. I saw the Clean Water Act, all those things happen in the United States. I've watched solar slowly grow in this country. And I've seen a lot of the environmental protections that we had roll back and attempts to roll back any participation in solving the climate emergency that we have facing us. So, We've watched that happen in my lifetime because I think you're 34. You've seen a portion of that in your life, and particularly the whole rise of the climate urgency that we've experienced. So what phase are we in? How is this different from what's in the past? And so why this different action?
1: You can look at this from a number of different perspectives, but I think the core narrative that we're looking at is that We've been trying a number of different strategies directed at the climate crisis to try and change the systems that we operate in, our economic system, our political system, our systems of social interaction. And it's a very big problem, right? Because fossil fuels are so embedded in the way that we entertain ourselves, the way we feed ourselves, the way we stay warm, all of these really important things. So it's a big project to create the changes that we need to see. People have been trying a number of different strategies over the last 30 years or so. I mean, around the time when I was born in the late 80s, the climate crisis was a political issue that people from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were in basic agreement about that. Obviously, we need to address this because it's going to cause a cataclysm that's going to affect everybody if we don't. But what wound up happening was that the fossil fuel industry, which had previously also been on board with these politicians and saying, yes, there is this big problem. We've researched it. It's not really up for debate anymore. This is happening. They started to pursue a different strategy of saying, well, we're not really sure about the science. There are some scientists who say it's not happening. We really need more information about it. So they started this campaign of disinformation, not really saying that climate change doesn't exist, but just that we can't really know for sure. At the same time, people in the climate world, activists and scientists who were trying to bring this message to the public, you know, this is an emergency, we need to really seriously address this at a grassroots level if necessary. These people were operating with the understanding that we shouldn't be too alarmist, right? We need to give people a positive message, allow them to absorb this information without feeling overwhelmed, Because the idea was that if you give somebody a negative message, then they have these contractive responses. You know, they'll get angry or they'll go into denial or somehow they'll distance themselves a little bit more from the issue. So at the same time that the fossil fuel industry was sort of spreading disinformation, the climate activist world was offering small scale solutions. Reduce your carbon footprint, recycle or something within our traditional political system like write a letter to your senator Organizations like the Citizens Climate Lobby, who are amazing and have done great work, they have this basic belief in the integrity of our political system, that our Constitution and our federal government is equipped, willing and able to address the situation that we're in. So there's nothing wrong with that. Like I think it's worth a try and people have given it a really good try. But 30 years down the road from the Rio conference, which happened in 1992, we're looking at a situation and we have to be honest about our assessment of these strategies. How do we measure whether or not these strategies have been a success or a a failure? And at what point do we say choosing to continue to apply these strategies is really not morally tenable? Because when you look at CO2 emissions from around the world, they, they continue to go up and up. So in spite of all the new technology, all of the positive stories that we've had about wind and solar, we're facing a basic problem that business as usual is bringing us more and more out of balance. And it's bringing us closer and closer to these tipping points, to these precipices that we're, we're flirting with here. And for people who are aware of this and who are looking at this, there's a massive amount of rage among people that we can obviously see our political system is, it looks like it's becoming less and less capable of dealing with this enormous issue, as well as, by the way, I would also say it's proving itself incapable of dealing with a whole host of other issues, too. So this is sort of the origins of the different approach that Extinction Rebellion is taking. When they first came out with Extinction Rebellion, a lot of people said Look, you can't use that name, right? You can't talk about extinction. They're talking about extinction of the, the human species, not just, you know, the black rhinoceros or something like that, but we're talking about mass extinction, the wiping out of most species on the planet, which we can get into more of why so many scientists are raising the alarm and saying this is the case. But basically, people are looking at the situation. We're moving into this catastrophic, worse than bad situation. And it's becoming more and more obvious that our political system and our economic system, the way that we come to collecting decisions in our culture is clearly not going to be adequate to solve this problem, right? Like, I don't think anybody at this point who's really looking honestly at the climate situation is convinced that eight years of Biden is going to provide the deep systemic changes that we need at this point. So that's kind of like where the ethos is coming out of.
0: Let's talk a little bit. I'm sure that many of the listeners of Spirit in Action, and certainly people involved in Extinction Rebellion and a number of other environmentally active people, they're very aware that there's climate change, a climate crisis going on, and crises in many other ways in the environment. Could you spell out what are the indicators that we have that say our timeline that we were working with before is insufficient? We've got to really step on the gas here.
1: A lot of indicators that the situation is worse and should be causing more concern and alarm than you see generally from the population or even from our leadership. You know, a lot of people gauge the severity of the situation by the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has been around since the 80s. It's the UN body that's supposed to read and absorb all of the scientific reports that come in from around the world and then give its recommendation or its assessment to global governments as to what to do. The IPCC's assessments have been consistently underestimating the rate of decline of our stable environment and climate. In 2007, for example, the IPCC said we might be looking at no summer ice in the Arctic sometime at the end of the century. Now in 2020, a lot of scientists are looking at the situation and saying uh, this event might happen in the next three or four years. And there's, there was a report that came out recently that was tracking a number of the most sophisticated computer models of the climate, which, by the way, are getting more and more advanced and refining their model of what the future is going to look like. It was an alarming report because it's indicating these different groups working independently are all coming to the same conclusion from these models that the climate actually might be more sensitive to carbon dioxide than previously thought, which means we... If we continue on the path that we're on, we might see four or five degrees Celsius rise by mid-century. That is really a devastating outcome that we really can't afford. I mean, four or five degrees happening that fast is going to mean... The death and displacement of billions of people around the world. And our civilization is not going to be able to withstand that kind of shock, right? I mean, we've seen what kind of shocks our societies have withstood just from COVID or from the Syrian civil war, how these have really shaken the foundations of our political institutions. And if you look clearly with the at sci- what the science is saying, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But we can say with a certain amount of confidence that things are going to be chaotic and bad. Another example would be the burning of the Amazon. I mean, that's something that's been on the radar of climate scientists for a long time, because as we know, the Amazon absorbs so much carbon dioxide and has an essential function in regulating global climate in a number of different ways. What scientists have understood is that as temperatures get higher, it will change rain patterns in the Amazon the Amazon will become drier, and then it will be susceptible to fire and burning. I think that scientists were predicting that to happen sometime in the second half of the 21st century if we didn't take immediate action. And now we're looking at that happening today, which is worse than alarming. And then really seeing forest fires around the world. I mean, Australia was facing catastrophic fires just a few months ago. I think the last 19 of the last 20 years have been record-breaking heat years. And again, it's just... The way that the climate crisis is going to emerge and the way that it is emerging is with compounding disasters, right? It's not going to be just more frequent and intense storms. It's not just going to be forest fires. It's not just going to be more pandemic diseases happening. It's not just going to be a refugee crisis. It's going to be all of these things happening at once. And like I've been saying, I think our government is not going to be able to withstand that many shocks. The fact is, I think, for people who are still dismissing the climate issue, we're not talking in terms of prediction anymore. Right now, we're talking in terms of observation. So this is no longer theory, but we're actually witnessing the compounding disasters. Another lens to look at this through is through our oceans. We're looking at only 10% of pre-industrial levels of fish remaining in the ocean, We're looking at massive dead zones in the ocean where oxygen levels are too low to support life in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, and also in the Indian Ocean off of Oman and many other places. This is one of the most important tipping points in the global climate that we know of from past extinction events, is that when acid levels get too high in the oceans and oxygen levels get low and the temperature starts to rise, you just see mass die-offs of ocean species. With dead oceans, we're really not going to get very far on this planet
0: as humans. When was the last mass extinction and how dramatic was it for the Earth?
1: I think the last one was the most famous one 65 million years ago when an asteroid smashed into the side of the Earth. I'm not sure about the numbers of what percentage of species died off in that extinction event, but I'm pretty confident it was more than 50%. What most people don't understand is, you know, you have that one asteroid event, but there were four other mass extinction events in the history of the fossil record and the geological record. All of those four were caused by rising levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the one that I know most about and that that has been studied most intensely recently because of how much it bears similarity to our present situation was the event that occurred about 260 million years ago. This was sort of like pre-dinosaurs when there were massive numbers of volcanoes that were active on the Earth's surface, and they ignited coal reserves in the Earth's crust. And so over the period of, of about 10,000 years, large areas of the Earth's surface were spewing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It was basically inciting the same process that our industrial civilization is undergoing now. With that, you saw the similar kinds of things like massive forest fires, the decline of ocean life, and the ultimate outcome of that event was the loss of 95% of animal and plant species on the planet. The only difference between that and what's happening today is that we are putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at a much faster pace today than Those volcanoes ever were. So we're looking at changes happening over decades instead of over millennia or centuries.
0: Folks, if you're just joining us for Spirit in Action, we are speaking with Daniel Yildirim. He is a mass mobilizer for an organization called Extinction Rebellion America. And I want to dive right into that because, Daniel, this did not start in the U.S. It started in the U.K., And yet my sense is that the U.S. has a very special role to play in this. Could you talk about the genesis of the global movement called Extinction Rebellion?
1: Right. Part of the trickiness of the situation that we're in is the different positions that different countries and different economic strata within those countries occupy in this dilemma, right? In the rich parts of the West, We've acquired a lot of comfort and we've developed our societies a lot through the use of fossil fuels. There's something sort of historically appropriate with the idea that Extinction Rebellion emerged in the UK, considering that that was where industrialization first was sort of conceived and took off and global capitalism sort of emerged from Britain and Western Europe At around the same time that they started using coal as a fuel source and, you know, creating steel, developing industrial civilization. So it seems appropriate and interesting. I think people in the UK also carry the sense of responsibility or duty. Those people living in Britain who are aware of that historical situation and aware of the responsibility that they bear in doing what they can to undo the process of industrial capitalism that has brought us to the brink of disaster. It started in the UK, but it quickly spread around the world really effectively. You see this movement in areas in the global South, in Nigeria and South Africa and India. I think there's this understanding emerging among people in the world that, you know, whatever tensions and issues exist between us, whatever historical trauma people are carrying, We're now reaching this point in history where we have to realize that our fates are tied together because of the global physical systems of the climate. So this idea that sort of spiritual teachers have been trying to present to people for centuries and that sort of exists in our common wisdom that we are actually all one. That's really being brought to bear in the climate crisis. So I, I think you're seeing this exciting emergence of people around the world feeling this heart connection with each other and realizing that in spite of all of our differences, this is a conversation that we have to have globally because it's a global problem. And I think, like you said, in the United States and North America, we both live in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is kind of like at the heart of North America. We have this special role to play because we sort of took the mantle of the United Kingdom and Western Europe as the forerunners of industrial capitalism, the ones who have produced the most and exported our ideology of fossil fuel driven development around the world and supported it with our capital. A lot of people around the world continue to look at the United States and oftentimes they say, well, what's the point of us taking risks or stalling the development of our own countries through fossil fuels if the United States is never going to stop. So I think a lot of people are hoping that something is going to emerge here in terms of Extinction Rebellion, something that's going to present a real meaningful challenge to the systems of power that are taking us on this sort of suicide mission into a climate catastrophe. There's a lot of support And there's a lot of hope emerging around a really powerful Extinction Rebellion mobilization in this country that's going to focus on Washington, D.C. and really try and do something beautiful.
0: Daniel, you mentioned that it started in the U.K. and it's migrated elsewhere. Has U.K. made progress? They've had a lot of events. They've been doing the work of Extinction Rebellion there. Has it changed things?
1: Well, yes and no. The peaceful uprisings that have happened in in London have represented the most powerful and the biggest acts of collective nonviolent civil resistance in British history. So that alone is really an accomplishment. But in terms of their response from the government, just like according to their plan of how it was going to go after a certain period of occupation where the police forces can't handle the number of arrests that they have to make, and basically have to cede the space to the protesters and the protectors, the government is forced to come to the negotiation table. And what they saw come out of those uprisings was, first, the UK Parliament declared a climate emergency, which, considering the reticence of UK politicians on the (laughs) climate up to that point, was really remarkable. And then the second outcome of that was that the UK government agreed to the Extinction Rebellion demand of creating a Citizens' Assembly, There were these successful outcomes from the actions that took place in the UK. But the problem is that, you know, a year has gone by since the UK Parliament declared a climate emergency, and they haven't really done anything about it. So in the meantime, Extinction Rebellion UK has been building its numbers They've been doing this momentum-driven organizing, is what they call it, increasing their power. And now that a year has gone by and nothing has happened, they're planning to go back in August and occupy the capital again to continually keep applying this pressure to the government. And as the actions take place and are created, that creates more recognition and more public awareness of the issue. And it's sort of by its own momentum The idea is it picks up and it snowballs and gets bigger and bigger. So we're kind of like going one foot in front of the other and moving towards this substantial structural change, which is really represented in the citizens' assemblies.
0: Folks, we're speaking with Daniel Yildirim, who is a mass mobilizer, that is to say an organizer for Extinction Rebellion America. Their website, xramerica.org. Of course, the link is on northernspiritradio.org follow a link from us, or just search for Extinction Rebellion and start learning. I'm excited because just last Saturday, Daniel was here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He's from about two hours drive away from here, and he was speaking with a small group of us. When we meet again this coming Saturday, our numbers will be at least tripled. We need that kind of geometric or exponential growth to address the climate crisis that's going on. You spoke, Daniel, about the Citizens' Assembly. This is an idea that will be new to most people. Give us an idea of why you need something special, a new mechanism, the Citizens' Assembly, and what we can do to move in that direction.
1: You know, I think a lot of people are recognizing that the level of toxicity in our political culture is preventing us from taking the action that we need to take. Like I said, you know, 30 years ago, the climate crisis was not a political issue. It was something that we all recognized needed to be dealt with. George Bush Sr. campaigned on the greenhouse effect, as they were calling it. He said, people who are worried about the greenhouse effect haven't heard of this thing called the White House effect. And we're going to deal with the climate change situation. And so... The way that things have devolved since then, I mean, there's a number of reasons why that is. But the main point is that things are so locked down in Congress that it's not a surprise that in recent polls, you know, upwards of 70% of Americans don't trust Congress. A lot of us, we feel this refusal to accept The death sentence of, well, our political system's broken, so I guess that means we have to just go further and further into this mass extinction event and leave a desecrated planet for our children and grandchildren. I guess we have no option. But the fact is that revolutions and rebellions have been recognized as an essential part of political progress and evolution for centuries. There's been a lot of research that's been done into how to create systemic change Or basically how to have a revolution with as little bloodshed and as little violence as possible. So there have been a number of examples of this taking place, especially in the last few decades around the world. And it's a dangerous business, to be sure, but people who are attracted to this movement recognize that we are already in dire danger. That's the main point. You know, most objections are saying, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? This is really the only option that we are aware of that can create the change necessary in the climate timeline that we're looking at. Because it's like, we have to get this done yesterday. But the big problem of revolutions is, who is to say that this political group within society has the right to determine what choices our society is going to make? That's the real critique of revolutionary politics, and it's the real central problem right? Because those who are best at seizing power from the state are oftentimes themselves very ill-equipped to govern. So how do you how do you solve this problem? Like the system can't function itself, but any group that comes along to change things is itself going to be authoritarian just by the nature of what they're doing. So the way that Extinction Rebellion has crafted its response to this dilemma is by saying, look, We don't have any specific answers to the climate crisis, right? There's probably going to be a thousand solutions, small solutions, big solutions, domestic, international, all kinds of things that we need to do. So we're not going to get into debating what's the best response. The only thing that we are demanding is democracy, authentic democracy, because what we have now is not democracy. We have an oligarchy based on wealth which has very cleverly and diligently wrapped its roots all around the power structures that exist so that we recognize and we're being honest about the fact that it's not that we're saying don't vote, but just recognizing that voting is not going to cut it at this point. So by all means, vote, campaign for your candidate, but recognize that the nature of the system itself right now, even if we put our full effort into it, it's been captured by the industry, by various industries. The way my friend puts it is they have their pieces all over the Monopoly board. They've already got hotels built around the whole thing. And it's just we're going to lose and we're going to lose Earth if we don't change the political system. And I think most people would agree with that, actually. But they don't really have a plan for how. The Citizens' Assembly is Extinction Rebellion's plan for how we need to change the political system. And it's saying that we're going to create a Citizens' Assembly, which is basically a random selection of individuals who are living and operating within the country, reflecting the real demographics of the country. So very carefully selected random selection of people who are not politicians, who importantly are not experts coming together as a political body and undergoing a process together where they, first of all, learn how to dialogue with each other and discuss and contemplate issues, learn to be in relationship with each other, learn who they are and where they're coming from, and then start to digest and incorporate everything that we know about climate science or everything that can be reasonably presented within a given amount of time. And then those people will come up with a host of solutions or recommendations to the government which then the government will be obliged to follow. That's part of the structure of the Citizens' Assembly. And the really important thing to know about this is that it's a, it's a method that has been tried in the past successfully. So for example, a couple of years ago, it was applied in Ireland over the abortion debate. The Irish political system was just at a standstill over this debate, and tension was growing and growing because it was an issue that the politicians... Just because of the structures that they're in, couldn't really come to a compromise or agreement on because of their basis of support, because of the short-term nature of the election cycle. So they introduced the Citizens Assembly, a random group of citizens who learned about the issue. They presented their recommendation and they ran a referendum on it, on the decision. And the referendum came back upwards of 60% in approval which is pretty good for today's political culture. The law was passed, and they were able to move on. They legalized abortion, and it was accepted by Irish society precisely because it was a group of people deciding on it who were like them, right? People have this cynicism, and deservedly so, of politicians. And so when people see people like them, ordinary people, deliberating, making decisions, there's a lot more buy in from the general population.
0: Is there any parallel at all with a constitutional convention or any other forms of representation where you draw from the general populace in the United States? Do we have anything on the ground in the U.S. that is similar?
1: The jury process in our judicial system was designed to be this like democratic check on judicial power. And even though, you know, juries have their problems that we're aware of, and we're looking for design solutions for those problems, generally, the jury system functions effectively in that way, a group of peers, ordinary people, deliberating and making decisions. But I think that the citizens assembling is really an idea of direct democracy. It's a more accurate representation of people because instead of our will supposedly being reflected by this elite class of politicians who are, you know, doing their slick best to try and look like somebody you want to have a beer with and loosening their tie and taking pictures and everything, trying to make the appearance of being a normal person, the Citizens' Assembly will, by default, be a group of normal people. And I think that that assembly process is really at the heart of all democratic projects, moving from the Enlightenment forward. And I think you see its spirit in the idea of representative democracy in Congress. But we have to be bold, and we have to accept a little bit of adventure here, because if we don't do something bold, then we're basically choosing to continue walking down this path towards mass extinction. A lot of people are waking up to the fact that that's not okay.
0: It's really clear we need to find a way to sidestep a really deadlocked political system that we're stuck in the middle of. Folks, we are speaking with Daniel Yildirim, who is mass mobilizer, one of the positions that they have in the organization called Extinction Rebellion America. Extinction Rebellion was born in the UK. Their website for this group particularly is XR. America.org you can find that link on northernspiritradio.org and on northernspiritradio.org you'll find links to all of my guests the last 15 years you'll find a list of the 40 or so stations across the U.S. that carry our shows so we find all kinds of information on this site. And I want to put in a plug here that you step out and support your local community radio station. It's so vital that we have alternative forms of communication. Right now, in talking with Daniel. It's so clear that we need to sidestep a political system that's screwed up, that's ineffectual, that's deadlocked. And our media is likewise controlled. It's an oligarchy system where just six corporations control more than 90% of our media in the United States. United States. That's why it's absolutely essential to support your local community radio station with your hands, with your wallet. Step forward, make sure we have to have a channel for change for information that doesn't exist now. So step it up by reaching out with your hands. NortonSpiritradio.org also has a place for you to comment on and rate the programs that we have. We love your comments. We love communication. And I think part of what the political system does now and part of what the media system has done has shut down communication between real people. Let's step it up by posting comments, by reaching out, making it two-way. There's also a donate button. Support Norton Spirit Radio by clicking on our donate button. And remember to reach out and check out Extinction Rebellion. Again, XRAmerica.org. You've talked, Daniel, now about one of the demands that Extinction Rebellion is making. I think there's four of them total. Could you talk about it in the full picture? Because Extinction Rebellion, it's not new that they're talking about climate change. It's not new that they observe the things going on with the environment. What's different about Extinction Rebellion is, say, it's time to get off our butt and take drastic action to make some progress, and drastic in the sense of it's urgent. We've got an emergency situation, just chasing our tails around doesn't work anymore. Could you talk about the other demands?
1: I think just responding to what you said, it's really important, I think, that we embrace the radical nature of our times today, because I think a lot of people, for good reason, feel hesitant to embrace radical solutions. But the result of that, I think, is that we're putting off this radical change that needs to take place. And if we choose to put it off, we're going to see more violent forms of radical change taking place just as a result of building tension. So I think Extinction Rebellion is really, at this point, the responsible and safe option for us as a society. Let's do this. Let's make this change with mass nonviolent civil disobedience. Let's get it done while there's still a chance at doing it relatively peacefully. I think that this model, mass nonviolent civil participatory civil disobedience, is really recognized by a lot of people as the major threat to power structures, right? There's a number of ways that it's a really good option, but it's also really important that we have clear demands. The Occupy movement of about 10 years ago, it was really effective and really represented, like I'm saying, like... A material threat to Wall Street and the corrupt financial and power structures that are so destructive. However, I think one downside, a way that it was undermined, was the fact that they didn't have a general consensus or idea of what the ask was from ordinary people and people in positions of power. They didn't have clear demands. And this is really a lesson that we get going back to Frederick Douglass. You know, he has that quote of like, power never concedes without a demand, and it never will. So the first demand is that the government tell the truth about the climate situation. People in powerful positions, they have means of knowing what the situation is on the ground. And they're not stupid. They are aware of the situation. But a lot of them are rationalizing it by saying, well, maybe the ultra wealthy will make out or you know, this is going to happen after I'm dead or retired, not really my problem. So the demand is that the government tell the truth. And not only in this abstract scientific way that's talking about parts per million and and things like that, but really translating it to regular people in terms of what their experience is going to be like over the next two or three decades, what their children's experience is going to be like. And the truth about that is that our global food systems are going to be profoundly disrupted by the climatic changes that we're encountering. So we need to talk about the likelihood of experiencing famine, people not having enough food to eat, people not having social safety nets, and also the inevitability of conflict as hundreds of millions of people in the global south and around coastlines and within our country for various reasons, don't have a place to live anymore. They don't have a safe situation. They don't know how they're going to feed their kids. So the government and the media and other institutions need to explain this and say, this is the barrel that we are looking down so that we can actually have the conversation that we need to have. So that's the first demand. Second demand is drawdown of carbon dioxide emissions at as fast a rate as possible by 2025. Many people of your generation, Mark, will say, well, that's just not within the realm of possibility. It'll be too disruptive. My response to that is always that putting it off farther than that is the fantasy option, thinking that we can say some number like 2050. Oh, we'll we'll change our energy system by 2050. It's going to be too late by that point. That is a death sentence for billions of people around the world. So then the third demand is that the government create and establish citizens' assemblies that the Congress and the executive branch And our government will be beholden to follow the decision of the citizens assembly. And then the fourth demand is recognizing that sort of this growing sense that I was talking about before that is emerging, that we are all part of the same family, not only all of humanity, but recognizing that there's a growing spirit and sense. And this demand in this way is a little bit more abstract, but there is a sense that we are really all in this together that we are all one fabric of humanity, and humanity is part of the fabric of life on this planet, and that we're no longer going to be able to entertain solutions where some people are going to be advantaged and some people are going to be sacrificed, or some ecosystems are going to be sacrificed. Which is really, by the way, the plan of many people in positions of power is that our solution will be something involving geoengineering schemes which when they run models on those are terrifying, you know, and oftentimes it's to the sacrifice of swaths of the earth in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia. So these geoengineering schemes are fundamentally racist plans that are saying, you know, we're going to be able to maybe benefit the Northern Hemisphere at the expense of the Southern Hemisphere. These kinds of strategies are no longer on the table is what we're saying. And part of the fourth demand also is that we recognize that people in the global south and the developing world have not developed their economies and societies using fossil fuels the way that we in Europe and North America and other wealthy places have. So we need to take that into account. And so that's why we're setting, hopefully with U.S. leadership and collaboration around the world, a global target of net zero by 2030 for all countries around the world. Recognizing that the right thing to do is to help countries like India and Brazil, places like sub-Saharan Africa, help them in every way that we can with technology, financial assistance, to make sure that the people in those countries are well fed on their own terms and well taken care of and living in safe and secure environments where they are living in dignity. That's what the fourth demand is about.
0: Everybody can find out more about that by going to XRAmerica.org. That's abbreviation for Extinction Rebellion America. Links on org. And we are speaking, by the way, with Daniel Yildurham. He is a mass mobilizer for Extinction Rebellion. You mentioned, Daniel, the necessity for a spiritual component. Is that a personal viewpoint of yours or is that organizationally a viewpoint?
1: You know, it's not something that's taken up in any official capacity by any part of Extinction Rebellion that I'm aware of, except that there's a lot of affinity groups in Extinction Rebellion. So there are faith leaders who sort of organize together within Extinction Rebellion. But I think generally the sense is that there has to be a spiritual component to this work. I think the reason for that is that nonviolent direct action is kind of intense. You know, it can be. And if we're not spiritually grounded in that work, and really centering heart connectedness, the oneness of all life, then it can devolve very easily into divisiveness, to blaming people, to villainizing other people. I'm both I'm talking about both figures of authority and enforcement like the police and the military, but also within the movement. You know, it's very easy for people within social movements to start blaming and fighting each other. So The way that Extinction Rebellion really talks about this is they talk about a regenerative culture. The emphasis is on regeneration because we recognize that all organisms, all parts of life, including the earth as a whole, has the ability to heal itself and to regenerate. I think this is really core to a lot of what different kinds of spirituality are teaching us. The ability to redeem ourselves, for example. The ability to recognize evil and stand up to it. But also recognizing that we hate the sin and not the sinner, right? That like everyone carries the spark of the divine in them, however you want to understand that, and that we are honoring that part of them at the same time that we are sitting down in the road and we're saying enough is enough. I'm done. I'm not going to take it anymore. And the right place for me right now is in jail. So that that requires a, a huge amount of spiritual energy in my experience. I also want to emphasize, it's a really important point that although being arrested and presenting that kind of challenge to the state and filling the jails is a central part of Extinction Rebellion's strategy, there are many people for whom that's a much more difficult experience. So we have to recognize that it's a privilege to be able to step in the way and be arrested like that. And we honor all of the support roles, um, the whole network of the organization that is required In other words, people who are not on the front lines, people who are not putting themselves in physical danger, also have a really important role in Extinction Rebellion. There are so many essential roles for people who are not able, for whatever reason, to be arrested.
0: I don't think, Daniel, that you're just talking about other people should do this, that you've in fact stepped forward. Have you spent your time behind bars yet in this organization? I don't know how long you've been serving as mass mobilizer for Extinction Rebellion.
1: Yeah, it's really a new job. I haven't been arrested as an Extinction Rebellion rebel per se, but I have been involved in a number of direct actions, including one in northern Minnesota last year, where some Catholic workers and myself entered a pipeline valve site and safely turned off a flow of the tar sands oil. We were arrested and spent some time in jail, and we're still awaiting trial for that, which with COVID, it looks like it might not happen at all. But My own personal experience is that, you know, as I learned more and more about the ecological crisis and the climate crisis, there was something in me that was unsettled and felt like was not in right relationship to the world. And this is a very personal thing. It's not everyone's journey, but I do know a lot of people who have echoed this idea. And there was something in me that said... I am not going to be at peace until I'm doing something that's sort of demonstrating my love for the world and demonstrating my grief, something that is going to like not recklessly or irresponsibly, because I also am a parent and I I have responsibilities, something that's going to put me in danger a little bit more. As a parent, I kind of compare it to a scenario where your child is being harmed in front of you by someone very powerful. And even if you know that you're not going to be able to stop it, you feel like, well, I need at least to be in danger with my child. You know, I I at least need to bear some bruises and, you know, stick up for my child, at least, even if it's not very hopeful that I can stop it from happening. So after being in, in jail was difficult and challenging in a lot of ways but there was also that part of me that felt like I was in right relationship now like there was a part of me that felt a great relief at i guess doing my part and and you know feeling like Thoreau did when he was in prison for not paying his taxes because he didn't support the Mexican war
0: could you say a little bit more about who you are you mentioned you are a parent I think you've got a farm. I think that uh, some people will imagine that, you know, if you're an organizer, you can do that when you're footloose and fancy free, that you're not dealing with the real nuts and bolts of what has to happen on this planet. But my sense is that your lifestyle is completely wrapped up with your values. And so you're, you're actually living out what where we need to go.
1: Right. For a long time, I saw the solution, and I still do, to our problems is we need to just change the way that we feed ourselves and our humans on this planet. And the way that that happens is like with a fermentation. You just bring a good example into the world and you're revolutionary in as much as you're successful at following this alternate model. And I really love the Buckminster Fuller quote where he says, you don't change the paradigm by fighting against the old paradigm. You change it by creating something beautiful and new so that the old paradigm just is obsolete and withers away because it's just obvious to everyone that the new paradigm is not only healthier and more economic, it's also more fun and more beautiful. So, you know, I've been pursuing with my family building this farm from scratch, basically, that's doing rotational grazing, carbon sequestration in the ground at the same time that we're raising nutrient-dense food for our community that we offer to our community, and providing just a beautiful human habitat to live in where we're engaged with natural cycles, with the cycles of the land and the climate in a way that just makes us more connected to each other and everything. But what I realized is that, you know, not only am I extraordinarily lucky to have access to this option, whereas most people around the world don't, even in this country, but I'm not, I wasn't able to create this membrane around my farm and family where the outside world wasn't going to be able to penetrate because of the truth. The spiritual truth is the real truth that we are all interconnected. It's not valid to try and isolate yourself from the issues of the
0: world. And Daniel, you already mentioned when you were confronting the pipeline, you were doing that with some Catholic worker folks. Yeah. What is your spiritual journey that gets you to the point where you're putting your life on the line for the planet?
1: Gosh, yeah, that's a complex answer. I mean, I, I sort of grew up in a really secular household. My dad came from a Muslim background and my mom came from a Catholic background. And so I was raised in a very post-religious way. And I kind of came up as an atheist, In high school. And then I started to recognize and value more mystical and esoteric forms and the philosophy really that went along with spirituality. So I delved in that way. And I also was really attracted to the way that spirituality binded communities together and really gave strength with shared spiritual practice. So I got involved when my son was born. He was Baptized in a Lutheran church that my wife and I, we were married in that were, we were really enthusiastic about, so we were always sort of attracted to Jesus as this spiritual revolutionary figure who was sort of hybridizing the idea of a material historical revolution, you know, an anti-imperial movement with inner transformation and doing it in a way that was really embodied and powerful and compassionate at the same time. So I think the story of Jesus has always been profoundly compelling to me. And then later on, um, I became involved with the Quakers and the Catholic workers. And moving on from there, I sort of got into meditation and spiritual inquiry and uncovering all the different layers of consciousness and trauma and truth that are present in our experience. So it's been really expansive for me. I have found it a spiritual practice and spiritual community to be invaluable in doing this work.
0: Well, with those inspirational words, I think we have to leave it for today. Folks, we've been speaking with Daniel Yildirim of Extinction Rebellion, the website where you want to find him, uh, and particularly his role as mass mobilizer with Extinction Rebellion America is xramerica.org. I guess we can't leave, actually, Daniel, without saying next April. There's a timeline here. What you said to us when you were speaking to us last Saturday was that you're going to put yourselves out of a job because there's a sunset on what we got to do when we got to do it. And once we get that together, then Extinction Rebellion America steps back. So what's happening next April?
1: So all of our energy is directed towards I should say most of our energy is directed towards this singular action where we're bringing all of our energy together at the same place, right on the doorstep of the powers that be right in Washington, D.C. Yeah, what I like to say is that Extinction Rebellion and Extinction Rebellion America especially is not designed to become an institution. It's designed to function as a life raft or a ladder or something like that where we're trying to accomplish this very specific purpose, and then we can discard it, right? It's not designed to take power and hold power. It's designed to pass power to the people. And then when that job is done, the way we put it in decentralized organizing is it can compost. All of the people and stuff like that can rearrange themselves into meeting the need of whatever comes next.
0: So when you say something will happen, people, the focus is April, but what is it that's going to happen next April?
1: People are going to come together at that part of the country and in an organized, peaceful way, start shutting down the city, you know, shutting down major intersections, maybe symbolic points. In Britain, they they focus on like Marvel Arch and Trafalgar Square. So in a hotness as visibly and as powerfully as we can taking over those spaces with mass numbers and having a sort of atmosphere of a festival, you know, of like free, good food and teachings and meditation, things like that. The idea being that we're sort of offering a vision of the changes that we want to see in society and we have clear demands and we're not leaving until those demands are met. And the courage and love that's required to do that is transformative in itself. So it's a, A group of people doing what they feel called to do and doing it in us, doing it right and doing it with courage and love. So what we need to do before that time is do all the organizing necessary. We have the structure to be resilient in that situation when we have the trust and the relationships already set up so that we don't need to be creating them on the fly. But can you imagine how powerful we will be if we are organized into affinity groups and we have decision-making structures, we have clear demands, and then we're just showing up as beautiful, vulnerable, creative beings who are acting in defense of all life. That's the kind of thing that's going to change the world.
0: So let's all be part of changing the world. One very vital way that I think that we can do that is by checking out further extinction rebellion, get involved with local organizations, be part of a movement which will wrest power away from political structure, which is deadlocked right now, which is not preventing the mass suicide of our planet. We need to transform it into uh, and I love the phrase that you used last Saturday moving away from doom and gloom to doom and bloom. We need a blooming planet not a gloomy planet. And so, join the party is, I think, <laughs> message. So, Daniel, thanks so much for jumping and doing this work. When you've got children and a farm and you've got so much on your plate, I think it's a real gift to the world that you put your hands and your life to the service. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action.
1: Thanks, Mark. I wouldn't miss it. I mean, where else would somebody want to be at this weird and wild kind of history
0: So again, folks, the website is XRAmerica.org. It's on Nordenspiritradio.org, along with a few choice bonus excerpts that we couldn't fit into this broadcast. I hope you all enjoyed the extra background noises of Daniel Yildirim's family and farm in this visit. I hope you check out your local affiliate of Extinction Rebellion America and get involved. And I look forward to seeing you next week.